Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, as these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone's evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our second scripture is from the book of Psalms. Verses, uh, chapter 115, verses 1 to 11. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by the, ha by the hands of men. They have mouths, but cannot speak, eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel, feet, but they cannot walk. 
nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. O house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. This is the word of the Lord. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Let's pray together. God, we come before you as your people. We come entrusting ourselves to your leading, your guiding, your teaching. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a Latin saying that emerged from the worship practice of the early church. It is lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. And literally it means the law or rule of praying establishes the rule of believing, establishes the rule of living. And the implication is that the way that we worship shapes what we believe, our faith shapes our way of life, living out our faith. Recall that the early church didn't have the benefit of modern technology and mass communication. People didn't have access to information as they do today. So worship practice was the formative training ground for belief and faith that informed life decisions and choices. Liturgy shaped theology. Doxology shaped doctrine. How have worship practices shaped your faith? Perhaps it has been more your experience that your faith has shaped your participation in worship practices. Curiously, when I typed in the Latin phrase on my iPad, autocorrect gave me lex Orlando, lex credentials, lex vice di, from which I surmised that Disney World establishes the qualifications for police detectives. And if that's the extent of my exegetical prowess, we're all in trouble. The psalmist says that whatever it is that you place your trust in is what you aspire to become. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. In other words, you are what you worship. Worship has formation. What does it mean to imply that worship is formative? that worship shapes belief in our way of living, to recognize that the patterns and practices of the gathered Christian community form us as a people that love God and love what God loves, who follow Jesus, love the city, and serve the world, or to consider how the work of worship accomplishes in us what Paul referred to in his letter to the Galatian church, that Christ is being formed in us, that corporate worship is instrumental in our discipleship journey and sanctification as we are to become more like Christ in thought and word and deed. You are what you worship. Jesus reminds us where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Part of this conversation is to recognize that we're, what we're describing when we use the term worship in the midst of a series on worship. 
So it helps to define the term. The scriptures employ a number of different words that are translated as worship in English. They express characteristics of ascribing worth, devotional acts of respectful homage that include bowing down, singing, praying, clapping, trembling, and they describe the work or service that we perform on behalf of the one we worship. The biblical terms don't refer exclusively to our posture to God. But as Phil reminded us last week, they are the heart posture of every person toward whatever it is they have committed themselves to, that they trust, that they put their faith in, their belief, their hope, and where they find their security and their identity. We are made to worship. The question is not if we worship. The question is who or what we worship. When worship's being described in the scriptures, it falls into one of three categories. In the broadest sense, all that we do is an act of worship to God. We're exhorted to do everything unto the Lord. Our very act of breathing is a celebration of God's work in creation, for he has breathed life into us. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise. Getting a bit more specific, the term worship is also used to describe the actions of the community who are gathered for worship. It's what we think of when we talk about corporate worship or what we do when we come at or around 5 p.m. When Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter four, she uses this language when she asks him about the place to go for worship. She's referring to the Jewish pattern of pilgrimage to Jerusalem where they meet with God yearly, regularly for festivals. This description of the gathered community for worship, it's a subset of this broader depiction or description that all our lives are offered in worship. And then the third category, in the narrowest sense, the Bible describes specific acts of worship, acts of devotion, such as bowing down, the lifting of hands, singing, praying, trembling, etc. They are also a subset of this worship in all of life, and we find them in the context of the gathered community, but also in our own uh, uh, context and settings. But it helps to have some of an idea of what we're referring to when we're using this term worship. And it's only a relatively recent phenomenon that the term worship has been applied to the musical part of when we gather for corporate worship. And of course, that creates another level of potential confusion when we're talking about worship. For the sake of our conversation, we're directing our attention primarily to corporate worship. What we do here, when the people of God are gathered to both receive from God and offer ourselves to God. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. We pick up Paul's letter to the Roman church that Mosin read near the latter half of the book. Romans 12 begins a section where Paul is giving instructions on how to honor God in everyday life. How the new people of God, because once we were not a people, should live out their faith. The chapter outlines how we are to relate to others to those who are in the church, and then to those who are in the world. And Romans 12, one to two is this linchpin of the conversation. It describes this relational encounter with the church and the world as being built on the relational encounter that happens in corporate worship. 12, one and two are the lex orandi and lex credendi, the way we worship that shapes what we believe. And 12, three and the verses that follow illustrate the lex vivendi, the way we live. We're gonna look primarily at 12, one and two, this language of how we worship shaping 
what we believe. I'm going to reread it for us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Whenever we see a a therefore, we should ask what it's there for. Paul has spent the first 11 chapters building the case that discipleship is predicated on union with Christ. The blessings and promises given to Israel belong to all people, Jews and Gentiles, who are united with Christ, and more specifically, those who have union with Christ by virtue of his death and the power of his resurrection. The structure of his letter letter tells us something about the formative power of worship. What we are called to do, that's the imperative, corresponds to what has been established in Christ, Christ Jesus, the indicative. As one commentator writes, the indicative of God's grace and mercy, in other words, telling, telling what God has done for sinful humans, must underlie the imperatives, outlining one's duty and obligation to God. Carrying out the imperatives would be an impossibility without the indicative. Another way of describing that is that there is an inherent pattern of gathered worship that is found in a rhythm of revelation and response. God makes himself known by his self-revelation and we act accordingly, we respond. It's a pattern of proclamation and participation, indicative and imperative. If we have one but not the other, it's like a one-sided conversation. It's no longer a dialogue. If the focus is exclusively proclamation, we quickly become passive recipients who are left on our own to work out the appropriate response. If the focus is exclusively on participation and worship is all about our expression, then we tend toward affirming the cultural narrative that places us at the center of the universe. Worship historian Robert Weber challenges us in this regard. He says, if God is the object of worship, then worship must proceed from me, the subject, to God, who is the object. If God is understood, however, as the personal God who acts as subject in the world and in worship, rather than the remote God who sits in the heavens, then worship is understood not as the acts of adoration God demands of me, but as the disclosure of Jesus, who has done for me what I cannot do for myself. In this way, worship is the doing of God's story within me so that I live in the pattern of Jesus' death and resurrection. Worship as formation shapes our response that corresponds to God's revelation. When we acknowledge God's holiness, we correspondingly give thanks, offer praise, humble ourselves in confession, and commit ourselves to being holy as God is holy by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. Worship as formation gives us space to hear and see, to listen and recognize when God is speaking and not just on Sunday. And worship as formation gives us language and actions that enable us to respond to God, who is calling us to be his witnesses of his love and his grace. Worship propels us into the work of God, his mission, where we live out the same rhythm of revelation and response. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Worship is a dialogue where God speaks and God listens. And to say it this way rather than God speaks and we speak helps us not to assume that the dialogue is a conversation among equals. 
We acknowledge the priority of God speaking and affirm that our speech corresponds to what he says. The initiative is God's and his word is first. So this afternoon, Nick led us in a call to worship. It's a pattern that is normative in Christian worship. God speaks first. He's the one who calls us into his presence. As the gathered community where we affirm that he is our God and we are his people. It's one of the reasons why at times we include responsive readings. Not only do they encourage our participation in worship, but they affirm this principle of worship, that it is an ongoing dialogue. In one church that was kind of working this out, they, they used that response, the Lord be with you, and the congregation responded, and also with you. And they, they got really good at it, so the pastor was you know, fixing the microphone and said, oh, there's something wrong with the microphone, and immediately they responded, and also with you. <laughs> I won't try that. But this is the formative power of Christian worship. When our worship practice does God's story, in other words, it unfolds in a way that is both a proclamation of and a participation in the story of God. We acknowledge and experience God's presence in a way that is not something that we've achieved or something that we've accomplished. In other words, my responsibility as a, as a worship leader, which is usually where I am, is not to lead you into the presence of God. I don't have that power. As though I have some kind of magic formula that as long as we follow it, God will show up, he'll appear. Rather, I'm responsible to provide leadership in God's presence. God who is already here, welcoming us and making himself known. Like Brian Dirksen describes, the worship leader is like a best man at a wedding. He points to the bride and bridegroom, directing attention and affection so that we continue to become a people who love God and love what God loves until Christ is formed in us. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. And Paul's definition of worship, true and proper worship, in Romans 12 is worship pro forma. He accounts for worship that is informative, that is formative, that is counterformative, and ultimately transformative. He addresses the brothers and sisters. He assumes that what he has described in the first 11 chapters is true of the people who are gathered for worship. They're followers of Jesus. He's addressing the gathered church. His appeal, his urging, isn't an offer of advice to be considered. Rather, the terminology here is authoritative. His exhortation represents the authoritative will of God. He's saying that in light of what God has done in Christ Jesus, believers are called to obey these directives. In light of what God has done in Christ Jesus, he appeals to the mercy or mercies of God, to the tender mercies, the richness of God's compassion. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. It's a contrast to appealing to the severity of God's judgment. And in this way, it's an appeal to participate in worship with a heart that is softened before God, softened toward God. Commentator and theologian John Murray says, it's the mercy of God that melts the heart, and it is as we are moved by these mercies of God that we shall know the constraint of consecration as it pertains to our body. Appealing to God's mercy acknowledges the formative pattern of faith and discipleship. God reveals and we respond. We come to Christ in view of God's mercy. That's what Nick did 
in the earliest part of our service. That's what suited as she led us through the songs, inviting us to recognize, to see where we have experienced, acknowledging God's mercy to us. That view includes this wide-angle shot of Christ who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, reconciling us to God in his death and resurrection. But it also includes that zoomed-in close-up of where we have viewed God's mercy in our own lives that has softened our hearts and brought us to acknowledge Christ as Lord. In my own experience, one of the most beautiful prayers I received when I was prayed for came in the midst of a family tragedy. It's 20 years ago this December when my dad was killed by a drunk driver on Christmas Eve. And although I don't recall too many of the details of those weeks, I remember being together with my family uh, the night of, and one of my brother-in-laws praying over us. And he prayed that even in the midst of our pain and our grief, that our hearts would remain tender, that our hearts would be softened toward God, our Heavenly Father, and toward others. I remember it not just because it was a spiritual thing to say or the right kind of words to communicate in that context, but because at a time when what had anchored my life up to that point had been removed, it was the fixed point on the horizon that I could aim toward. And in the weeks that followed and the emotional ups and downs, I could aim in that direction. And I think that worship as formation brings us into God's presence in view of the fixed point on the horizon that is God's mercy and that has the effect of causing our hearts to soften. Even if it means we have to pray, break my heart for what breaks yours, everything I am for your kingdom's cause. What is your zoomed-in close-up experience of God's mercy? And how has it shaped your heart? Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. And then Paul tells us we offer our bodies as sacrifice. And Paul uses this Old Testament terminology, sacrifice, to affirm the journey of worship that is a yielding of oneself. And that's a formational goal. Our corporate worship practice should invite us into the dynamic relational encounter with the living God in such a way that in your relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And worship affirms the pattern of discipleship where we practice self-denial, take up our cross, follow Jesus. Paul uses three adjectives to describe the sacrificial giving of ourselves in worship. They are living, holy, and pleasing to God. It's a living sacrifice because we have been made alive in Christ. It is holy as it reflects a life turned away from sin and set apart to fulfill what God calls us to that is ultimately directed toward delighting the heart of God. The adjectives Paul uses further affirm that Christian worship is something that God gives to us as a gift. It's not something that we can create or generate ourselves. David Peterson defines worship as an engagement with God on the terms that he proposes and in the manner in which he alone makes possible. 
Worship is offered on God's terms. In view of his mercy, and in such a way that we who were dead in our transgression have been made alive in Christ, yield ourselves to God for his purpose and his pleasure. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. And Romans 12 picks up on what Paul establishes earlier in Romans chapter six. It says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. These are instructions for life as a Christ follower. But as Romans 12 attests, they are grounded in the practice of the worshiping community. How do we know how to do these things if we don't learn them as a member of Christ's body, his church? And by learning, I don't really mean become educated about them, but that we practice them so that they become second nature. Musicians and athletes recognize the power of imitation and repetition to learn how to perform at their best. Professional athletes mimic the patterns of their favorite sports heroes and repeat, repeat, repeat. Pitchers make incremental adjustments to their arm slot, to point of release, to finger positioning on the ball, to how their wrist snaps off a pitch, creating spin, their follow through, their landing position, and on and on and on. And they become second nature as they rehearse these motions, usually under the guidance of an instructor or a coach, and more and more the use of video feedback. A couple of years ago, Under Armour developed an ad campaign uh, with a number of athletes, Tom Brady, Steph Curry, um, Misty Copeland, and Jordan Spieth, performing, and they perform a simple task. And then what they did is superimposed uh, images of them repeating that task. And there were thousands upon thousands of Tom Brady's all just repeating the throwing of a football. And the voiceover, the slogan at the end of it, you are the sum of all your training performing the same task, designing to give us the impression that the achievements of these athletes are a function of the years of practice and preparation. As Phil mentioned last week, worship is a skill we need to learn. There is training involved. Worship is more caught than taught. We need to be in worship to get it. Most of what you have gleaned about worship over the weeks, months, and years that you've come to church is less a function of specific teaching and more a function of what you have experienced, what you have practiced. So how do we develop our prayer life, for example? We start by imitating the model that's given to us in the Lord's Prayer. Like musicians, we start with standards and we learn to adapt, to adjust, and to improvise. Immersing ourselves in the Psalms gives us the language that we pour out in praise and petition. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Worship practices form us as Christ followers as they develop our second nature. See, our first nature is the sinful nature. It's the nature of the flesh, but with the indwelling spirit of Christ, we have a second nature, spiritual, that is at once redeemed by Christ and in the process of redemption, our sanctification. And in worship, under coaches and instructors, pastors and leaders, uh, 
we rehearse the patterns that develop in us a kind of muscle memory for becoming compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And Dallas Willard paraphrases this as, don't try, train. Corporate worship puts a whole new spin on the term cross-training. Corporate worship trains us toward behavioral change, but it is not primarily just a method of behavior modification, nor is it a school of intellectual enlightenment. It's ultimately a place where our hearts are being formed and shaped. James K. Smith says that this kind of discipleship practice is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. He says this because he reminds us that our Christian living flows less from what we know than it does from what we love. We all acknowledge places in our lives where we know better, but we choose differently. Paul describes it in glorious detail in Romans chapter seven. That's what he says. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Clear as mud? It is less the case that we are what we think as it is that we are what we worship. In other words, what our hearts desire is the better predictor of our life choices and patterns than merely what we acknowledge or understand. If that is indeed the case, then our worship practice, which includes information because it is content-driven, is also deeply formational and counter-formational as it addresses our practices and habits that shape our heart's desires, what we love, ultimately so that we love God and love what God loves. Worship as formation provides opportunities for us to affirm where we align or realign ourselves with God, essentially where we are saying yes to God. We say yes to God who is the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer of all things. And this affirmation is formative. But we're keenly aware of how positive affirmations are so often overtaken by negative ones. We're told that for every negative opinion of ourselves, we need 10 positives to outweigh the negative. And worship that is formational includes this kind of counterformation, where we need to say no to the ideas and ideologies of a culture that is at odds with the gospel. Psalm 45, seven says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. Proverbs eight, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. Yes and no. Yes to God and no to what is not God. And the obvious example of worship as formation here is our practice of confession. What Nick led us through this evening where we say no to the God substitutes that we have embraced, be they conscious or not. And while we say yes to God, we hear an even bigger yes from God 
in the pronouncement of our forgiveness and the assurance of our pardon. And that is good news. Romans 12, 2 affirms this work of worship as counterformation when Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. And Paul introduces this negative injunction with respect to the pattern of this world. It's a realistic accounting of the presence of sin and the cultural narrative that is, in many ways, at odds with the gospel. This world, or this age, is the present age. It is the temporal and transient age that is this side of eternity. Elsewhere in Paul's writing, he calls this age an evil age. The first evidence of Christian faith involves turning from sin. He sets up this contrast between being conformed to the pattern of this world and being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's part of a larger contrast that he establishes early in Romans chapter one, where he uses the same term worship, but false worship, to describe the fundamental sin of humanity, and that is our failure to worship God, and the corresponding impact. In chapter one it reads, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. The description of true and proper worship that we find in Romans 12.1 is a reversal of the false worship depicted in Romans 1. Formation and counterformation are subsets of transformation, which is ultimately the work of God to change our hearts. It's not only the part that we don't control, it is the part that is a mystery to us. All our best laid plans of worship that does God's story are ultimately submitted to God to do what only he will do to soften and heal our hearts, to renew our minds, so that with full confidence we can know the will of God and do it. Worship as formation is set within the context of worship as transformative encounter. When we ask questions about worship as formation, we can easily get preoccupied with the how questions. How do we affirm one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we help people see and experience God's mercy How do we offer ourselves sacrificially as a living sacrifice that is holy, that's pleasing to God? How do we no longer conform to the patterns of this world? How does God transform us by the renewing of our minds? They're great questions, every one. But they're not the question of worship. The question of worship is ultimately who, not how. Because worship is not a program, it is a relationship. Does the power of worship as formation relate to the impact of habitual practices that shape us to love God and love what God loves? Yes. But it's not the practices independent of the relationship that ultimately transform us to live empowered Christian lives. Neither can we expect to grow and mature without submitting ourselves to the beautiful work of worship that informs, forms, and counterforms and where God transforms us. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Worship as formation, you are what you worship. When the psalmist affirms this principle, he says, those who make them will be like them. 
and so will all who trust in them. Where you place your trust is what you aspire to be. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so the psalmist concludes as a way of counteracting the work of giving our hearts to God's substitutes and affirming the beautiful work of giving our hearts to God. He says, all you Israelites trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we ask you to commit us to the discipline of community, that you would affirm our identity as your dearly beloved children, brothers and sisters, that you would commend us to the beautiful work of worship that shapes our hearts and lives to love you and love what you love and that you would soften our hearts to receive your mercy and extend it to those who are around us. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.